Heavenly Father, it's such an incredible blessing that you would not only grant us this text to examine this morning and to hear clearly by your Spirit, but that you would gather us here today as a church, as one body, to hear it together. We ask that you would do only what you can do through your Spirit and engage us supernaturally. We want to see you clearly at Sinai. We want to see the majesty and the glory and the power and the holiness of who you are. Understanding that you are unapproachable apart from Christ. That our sins prevent us from coming to you and worshiping you and knowing you as Father. And in the same way, Father, I pray that you would magnify Zion this morning to us, that we as a people, through your Spirit, might see clearly the access we now have in Christ, that we no longer stand condemned and judged, but forgiven and redeemed. Father, these are difficult times apart from leaning heavily upon your Spirit. Even this hour, Father, so many of our brothers and sisters are not here with us. We ask, Lord, that you would increase our faith, that we might be faithful to you and to one another, and that you would take this time to bring yourself honor and glory by changing us. We are thankful that we are sanctified by the blood of Christ. Now we ask, Lord, that you would Make us holy as He is holy, and give us ears to hear that which we may not want to hear. I ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Every Sunday we proclaim the gospel through the text. It's not that Pastor Kurt or Pastor Kirk or I couldn't come up with something else other than the Bible to talk to you about. But we preach the Word of God because that's the power that we have to hear, to receive, and to be changed by it. But the proclamation must be received by you, and it cannot be received by your flesh. It must be received in the Spirit that dwells in you. And so I want to ask you to do everything that you can to crucify your flesh right now. The tiredness, the frustration, the anxiety, the distraction that will prevent you from receiving this word. Hebrews has been an extraordinary study, and we have studied many passages that leave us in a state of awe. These are no exception. Just hearing them read, if you are attuned to worship this morning, should have left you trembling and filled with joy at the exact same time. That would be the right hearing of the word being read. If you don't have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 12, please do so. I want us to see some of these words with our own eyes so that we can experience the magnitude of the text. In 1843, Charles Dickens, the 19th century English author and playwright, he released his now famous novel, A Christmas Carol. 177 years later, his story is now a classic part 
of American history. I think in part because it speaks to sinful man's desperate need to be transformed, to be changed. Most of you know the name Ebenezer Scrooge. You hear that name and you shudder. He's that self, yes, bah humbug is right. That self-centered, miserable miser in Dickens' story that so desperately needs to be saved. And like the author of Hebrews, Dickens' novel is filled with warnings, three to be exact. If you know the story, on the night of Christmas Eve, Ebenezer goes to bed, maybe, and he experiences three Christmas spirits, Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. And all three take him on three separate journeys. Each journey, he gets a vision, a revelation about his life. So that he can, through these truths, turn from his wicked ways and not end in destruction. The warnings were glorious. If you were here last week, Kirk brought to our attention the fifth and final warning of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 12, he told us, lift our drooping hands, strengthen our weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. Why? Look at verse 15. So that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So that we hear the warnings and we don't end in destruction. And these warnings go all the way back to chapter 2. And every single warning has been a warning of eternal significance. Eternal life and eternal death. In similar fashion to Charles Dickens, the author of Hebrews, here in this passage, he takes his first century Jewish Christian audience on a field trip. And he wants to take them to the past, the present, and the future in attempt to magnify the warnings that they stay the course, that they don't turn back. Under heavy persecution, many were considering to go to a past worship, to go back to Moses and back to the laws, thinking somehow they could remain faithful to God, Yahweh, without staying under the banner of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So to influence his thinking, to keep their feet on the straight and narrow path all the way into heaven, he gives them two fantastic comparisons. One between worshiping God at Mount Sinai through Moses and the law and worshiping God through Jesus Christ and the new covenant at Mount Zion. Now, most of you know mountains were places and have been still today where cultures would go to the heights to worship their gods. And the author here, he says, this is the same God, but in a radically different way will you worship him. In a radically different way. He wants his audience to draw this single, listen, logical conclusion, which I pray we can today as well. Worshiping God in Christ at Mount Zion is infinitely better than worshiping God with Moses as a mediator at Mount Sinai. That's the conclusion he wants his audience to have. I want us, I think it's the key for us as well, that your worshiping God through Christ at Mount Zion is infinitely better than any other worship in your life. Anything you want to turn back to, any particular law or work or your marriage or morality, anything you think, if I go there, I'll be better. The author is saying you are a fool because worshiping God through Christ at, at, at Mount Zion is eternal life and any other worship 
is eternal death. The same message he gave to them, he gives to us this morning. So I would like to, with your permission, I would like to take you on a field trip too. So I hope you have your wristband so we don't get lost. I want to do past, present, and future. And I want to look at it in the context of the Holy Spirit, not Christmas spirit, past, present, future, but the Holy Spirit taking us to Mount Sinai first and then Mount Zion. And by God's grace, we will see and hear the warning that we might not turn away from Jesus, but we might be encouraged to press on all the way to the end, all the way into Zion forever and ever. And I want to do that by looking at three things, worship past, worship present, and worship future. Let's look at worship past first. Why should you stay the course in Christ? Look at verses 18 and 19. The author writes, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Verse 19, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So the first stop the Holy Spirit is going to bring us this morning is to the base of Mount Sinai. Now, you know Sinai well because we, well, we just worked our way through Exodus. And you remember how God's people were led to that particular place and how God descended in glory and majesty. We're told in Deuteronomy 4.11 that they, the people, came near Mount Sinai and they stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire into the heavens, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And there they are to receive the Ten Commandments. They're there to experience the holiness and the power of this Yahweh. And he describes this scene for us. The author wants us to go back. He wants us to see. He wants us to smell and to hear what that first group heard at Mount Sinai. And I love how he starts off in 18. He's speaking to them, these first century Christians, and he says, you have not come to this mountain. He says, you haven't been to Mount Sinai. You weren't required to go there, and you don't want to go there. Look at verse 18. This phrase, when he says, you have not come to, it's a, it's a single word in the Greek. It's already been used five times in the book of Hebrews, and every single time, it means to go to God and worship. So you could translate it like this. You have not come to worship God at Mount Sinai. You say, well, why, why wouldn't I want to worship him there? The author gives seven graphic terrifying descriptions of what it's like to worship God at Mount Sinai. He gives four visual images, a mountain, fire, darkness, and gloom, and three audio experiences. A windstorm, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice. Look at verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom. So first and foremost, they're at a physical mountain. Real mountain, real place, real time in history. God descends atop, atop that mountain. And what do they see on top of the mountain? A blazing fire. You could translate that an all-consuming fire that will devour everything and anything in its path. It is a fire of judgment. And yet they also saw darkness, which can be translated gloom or thick cloud. And that's a fascinating image. This fire that's burning brilliantly into the heavens certainly was bright, but it was simultaneously cloaked in the darkness of judgment. So he adds gloom to it as well. The word in the Greek is zophos, 
and it literally means, you know this, because we did it in Exodus 10, a darkness that could be felt. And you hear that, and I don't even have to describe that, and you go, oh, that's a darkness that comes in on you and presses against you, a darkness you want to flee from because it's so horrific. You remember the ninth plague, don't you? The plague right before God brought the angel of death and killed the firstborn throughout Egypt. That ninth plague, Exodus chapter 10, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three long days. On top of Mount Sinai, the presence of God brought fire, it brought darkness, and it brought a, a palpable gloom in supernatural fashion. The intention was fear, but they would recognize this God is so holy and they are so sinful that they can't draw near to God in worship. That was the intention of the theophany. God remained hidden, cloaked in the darkness, and at the same time revealed his all-consuming power through the fire. But as terrifying as that sight must have been, and I would have loved to have had a photo op, wouldn't you, of all the Israelites standing there like that, right? It wasn't the visual that got them. It was what they heard. Look at the latter part of verse 18. They came to a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, verse 19, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. The tempest is probably better translated whirlwind because it's talking about what they heard. They heard the sound of wind. You know that type of wind when you're standing next to somebody and they're talking to you and you can't hear them because it's blowing so hard? This is what they're hearing, a windstorm. And they heard the sound of a trumpet. But this was no trumpet that you'd hear in the San Francisco Symphony. This was a war trumpet. It was a trumpet announcing God's victory and the total destruction over his enemies. This is what they were hearing, but it was the third and the last sound described here by the author that put them right over the edge. It was a voice, and not just a voice, it was the voice of God. Look at verse 19 again. A voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Now this is important. It wasn't the sound or the volume of what was being said. It was the person who was speaking and the message he was giving that told, they said, no more. Do not speak to us, God. The hearers begged no further message be spoken. Why? Look at verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Now, if you remember from our study in Exodus, God being so gracious... And so loving and kind to his people, he said to Moses, Exodus 19, set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to come up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. That's a loving warning. God is saying, listen, I am so holy that by the very fact that I've come to earth on this place, this dirt, this mountain is now holy. You come near, you touch it, you will die because I am holy and you are a sinner. Any man, any woman, any child, even a beast would die immediately. And so the holiness of God was too much for Israel. The commandments given, too much for Israel. And so what do they do? Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is the actual scene now. 
as soon as the people heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, as soon as God started talking, while the mountain was burning with fire, the people said, this great fire will consume us. Uh, They were getting it. I mean, they're right on point. They said, if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, if he says one more word to us, we shall die. And then the Lord said this to Moses. They're right. (laughs) They're right in all that they have spoken. And then he said, now listen to this. Deuteronomy 5.29 says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always. Oh, that they had such a heart for, as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants. How long? Forever. Oh, that we might see God's holiness in the midst of the grace, in the midst of the new covenant, that we don't lose track of who this God really is. They realized that to remain before this mountain apart from a Savior meant certain death. And so what do they do? This is a loving group. They commission Moses. They tell Moses, you go talk to God, and then you talk to us. We don't want to talk to him anymore. Now, Moses was already their intercessor. He was already their mediator because God had called him for that post. How did Moses respond to this? Look at verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight, Mount Sinai, God descending, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And he said, wait a minute. This is Moses. Moses is the one who saw God at the burning bush. Moses is the one who went back into Egypt and spoke directly to Pharaoh. Moses was the one who brought through God all the plagues onto Egypt. Moses was the one who led them out of the land of Egypt. He led them across the sea and to the mountain. And what's happening here? Moses is terrified. He said, well, that's not a very good mediator. He trembled with fear because he too saw the holiness of God in his own sin. The cumulative effect of this supernatural audiovisual experience was to display God's absolute holiness and man's sin. It was to reveal to his people that it's, listen, it's absolutely impossible to draw near to God without a Savior. You have no hope of coming before the holiness of God in your sinful state unless someone has died in your stead, making you holy. In other words, God is revealed at Mount Sinai as an unapproachable God. You can't just waltz into his presence. We can't come with our own worship and our own salvation. The author of Hebrews wants his first century audience to see, going back to a past worship, what they were tending to do, going back to the Levitical law, or the Old Covenant. He said that is a a direct one-way trip to the base of Mount Sinai, and that means death for you. It means death. As sinners approaching the power and the majesty and the holiness and the justice of the Almighty God, this is the creator of the universe. We attempt that without a Savior. We attempt that without a Savior who can make us holy as God is holy. You have no hope. You have only death, only judgment, only destruction. So for us today, the message is exactly the same. If you turn away from Christ and you go back to a past worship, whatever that past worship may be, 
if you think that you can find salvation in anything other than the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are taking a road to Mount Sinai too. You will fail to obtain the grace of God if you go back to your old ways. You say, what are my old ways? I don't know what your old ways are, but you do. Your old interests, your old friends, your old habits and passions, your old way of speaking, a little here and a little there, and suddenly we're in a place that we don't want to be. All of us came to a saving grace in Christ, having worshipped another God, a foreign God, having put our hope in a salvation of another kind. The author is saying clearly here, as he did to the first audience, as he says to us today, you go back to any other Savior, any other worship, and that is going straight to Mount Sinai. Because God is holy and you are a sinner, and without Christ you have no hope. If you continue sinning deliberately, we heard this in the fourth warning, did we not? Hebrews chapter 10, if you continue to sin deliberately at this point in time, then you fast-tracked yourself to Sinai also. Hebrews chapter 10, listen, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now listen closely, Hebrews 10, 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's the fire of Sinai. That's the fire of that mountain. That's not where you want to be. That's not where you want to end up. It is a death sentence for all who attempt to approach it alone. Are you with me? All right. All right. So the past worship for you is also a death sentence. You haven't been led to that mountain, though. Point number two, our present worship or worship present. If the Christian hasn't been led to Mount Sinai, and we're so thankful that that's not where God has brought us, then where where did he bring us? Where did we end up? And how do we know? How do we know it's better? I mean, at least God was there. How do we know going to Zion is going to be better? The true believer, saved by grace, has come, past tense and now forever, to a completely different mountain. Look at verse 22. He says, but, meaning you didn't go to Sinai, you're at Zion, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And so the author, juxtaposing the seven terrifying characteristics of being at Mount Sinai, the physical mountain, fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, trumpet, and God's voice that could not be heard. The author brings his believing community to where they already are. Not worship past, not Mount Sinai. He brings them to where they already are, worship present at Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion, we're told there are innumerable angels, the assembly of the firstborn, God the judge, the spirits of the righteous, the mediator Jesus Christ, and better blood. Better blood. In other words, he takes the overwhelming truth of our state before a holy God without a Savior at Mount Sinai, and he eclipses it with where we really are in Christ, having full access to God, having full access into God's kingdom. How different these two places of worship are. Seven opposite characteristics. Look at the first one. The Christian worship is at Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice it's not by sight but by faith. Mount Sinai could be touched. 
You could touch it, but you wouldn't want to touch it because you would die. Mount Zion is not a physical mountain. Mount Zion is spiritual and can only be received right now in the present through faith. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, we started off in Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11, chap, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so in Christ, the Christian is granted access by faith right now into Zion, into the city of God, the dwelling place of God. My beloved, that means you, you have access right now in Christ by faith to have God, the Father, Christ seated at his right hand. dwelling place of God most high. Now we know from Revelation chapter 21 that this exact city will one day come to earth. Christ is going to bring it to earth. Revelation 21 2, John said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Oh, what a day that's going to be. But until then, the author is saying and John is saying, until then, you church you can have that city, be in that city, and enjoy that city right now through faith. You can have it now and experience it now and rejoice in it now through faith. Now, that should be sufficient for me to stop. You can say, that's enough. I got it. But the author doesn't leave it there. He just continues to magnify the glory. The Christian worships God by faith in the Son coming to Mount Zion. He also comes to, notice this, the innumerable angels in festal Festal, we don't use that word. Festal, festive, festal gathering. You know what it means, right? He's describing here angels so numerous they cannot be counted. And what are they doing? You know what they're doing? They're partying. They're singing. They're dancing. They're rejoicing. They're enjoying the Lamb of God. Revelation 19, listen, you don't believe me? <clears throat> John saw it. John said, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. These are the angels. What are they saying? Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. Oh, my goodness. You've never been to such a gathering. You've never seen this. We've never heard this. It is the greatest celebration ever. But it gets better. Look, tens of thousands of angels celebrating and rejoicing. And then in verse 23, who else is there? The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You say, who is that? Well, if you remember, that title, firstborn, was given to Israel when they came out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 4. Right? So as God is leading his people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, he calls them the firstborn. But that's not the same firstborn here. Here at Mount Zion, the firstborn are the saints victorious. It's all our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. It literally says in the Greek, the ecclesia of the firstborn, the church awaiting for us. So when we worship right now, we're worshiping with the multitude of the angels and the multitude of the saints victorious who are with God right now. And they are rejoicing as well. They, those who have finished the race, are engaging in the festive celebration. You see, at Mount Sinai, they were separated from God and the angels. The angels are there, remember? They're separated from God and the angels at Mount Sinai. But at Mount Zion, a completely different story. They're on the inside. They're with God, they're with the angels, and they're worshiping the Lamb who is Christ. 
we're told that they are the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You say, what does that mean? He's saying these are the ones whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 13, 8. These are God's elect. These are the ones that Christ died for and secured their entrance into the city. You see, unlike Esau, the firstborn of Isaac, who gave up his birthright that he might have a meal, these saints, they persevered all the way to the end. They did not forsake their birthright as the firstborn for the things of this world. They stayed the course. And in staying the course, the result is what? It's the festivities of Mount Zion. You say, well, this is incredible. It gets even better. Look at verse 23, latter part. In coming to Zion, they also came to God, the judge of all. Now you say, now wait a minute. This story is suddenly turning bad. I mean, we're coming in. We're enjoying the presence of the angels. We're enjoying the presence of the saints victorious. Everybody's rejoicing and singing and worshiping, and now God is the judge. He's the judge who must judge all sin and all evil. And he's at the center of this heavenly celebration. And you say, oh, no, I'm not so interested because I know that I'm going to be judged. At Mount Sinai, you would be. At Mount Sinai, the presence of God, his judgment means certain death, but not at Zion. Listen, God the judge of all is able to commune with the saints victorious and you as well right now because he's made you holy in Christ. God, the judge of all who must judge all sin, will receive you by faith, not because you've lived a holy life, but because this great, glorious, just God, he put all of his wrath, all of his punishment upon his son so that you by faith, a sinner, could be saved by grace and declared righteous so that you can receive the holiness of Christ. And therefore, you can what? You can go into Mount Zion, and there's God, the judge of all, and you're not going to tremble like Moses did at Mount Sinai. You're not going to draw back. You're going to draw in because he's going to see you. He's going to see the holiness of his son, and he's going to say, come on in. Come all the way in. Start singing. Have some food. Enjoy the company as we worship the Lamb. They have been permanently changed. No longer criminals. No longer unable to approach God. They are now, because of the work of Christ, they are justified. Not because of their good works. They're justified. Made sons and daughters of the king because of the great work of Christ. And now they can enter, look at, permanently changed. Look at the latter part of verse 23. They're also identified as spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's people just like us. Declared righteous before the judge of all, sinless and blameless, not because of our holiness, not because of us coming to a saving grace and now living a holy life, but because Jesus Christ, through his perfect sacrifice, makes us holy as he is holy. So God can be both the just and the justifier, making us perfect. And if you're perfect, if you're sinless, well, Zion's your home. That's where you want to be. And that's why God does this great work for his own glory, that you might be received and loved and enjoyed. You say, but how can all this possibly be? 
if God is the same God who descended upon Mount Sinai and, and his children, the people of Israel, could not approach him because of his holiness, how can we get into Mount Zion if at Sinai it was so bad in judgment and death? How do we get into Mount Zion if we're the same sinful people and he's the same holy God? Something about this story's got to change. But we're all in big trouble. How can we enjoy the festivities? I want to be around angels. I do. I want to be around saints victorious. I got lots of people I want to talk to. I want to be in the presence of the Lamb. I want to be singing and dancing and rejoicing and eating. How can we do that? When our present worship, listen, of God is through faith in Jesus Christ at Mount Zion, we come into because, verse 24, we have come to Jesus. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better blood than the blood of Abel. You see, at Mount Sinai, they had an old covenant and they had a mediator that trembled. At Mount Zion, we have a brand new covenant. And we have a mediator who went all the way to the cross and gave his blood that we might be redeemed. A mediator who guarantees, by grace through faith, access into the dwelling place of God into the heavenly Jerusalem. He guarantees that angels and saints victorious will be your company. He guarantees it. At Mount Sinai, Moses, if you remember, he sealed the old covenant by sprinkling the blood of an animal. Exodus 24, Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, the words that were given, the Ten Commandments. At Mount Zion, Jesus sealed the new covenant between God and man. Grace and faith. He sealed the new covenant by sprinkling what? His own perfect, precious, sinless blood. We know this. We saw this in Hebrews chapter 9. It's the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered without blemish to God. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive what? The promised eternal inheritance. And what is that? That's Mount Zion. That's the dwelling place of God. Oh my goodness, this is so good. This is the Christian's worship present. Not past, not Sinai, not law, not old covenant but a present worship of Zion, in Zion, of God right now, able to enter the city of the living God without fear of being destroyed right now by grace through faith. Able to worship and celebrate God in the presence of angels so powerful that if one were to appear right now, we would all fall out of our chairs. Able to worship God in the presence of the saints victorious. Able to worship God not as our judge, but as our Father. He is the judge of all, but He will not judge you because He judged Christ in your place. We have access to that right now. You say, but yeah, it's not perfect yet. No, not yet. We don't have it fully yet. No, not yet. You don't. But you have it enough by faith that you can know, listen, you can know, you can experience, and you can enjoy Zion now. You can have it in your life right now. The presence of the kingdom of God on earth that you have been called into through Christ. 
I mean, even this morning, my beloved, we're getting a taste of it. This very moment, we enjoy the immediate presence in a supernatural way because we've gathered as one body. We enjoy the immediate presence of God the Father and God the Son through God the Holy Spirit who dwells in us right now. The gospel, by His grace, I pray, is being faithfully proclaimed. And so we know from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, that the angels are looking in. They're dipping their heads down saying, what is he talking about? What is this great gospel and the work of Christ to save sinners like us? Listening, we know that we are amongst brothers and sisters right now at this very moment whose names have already been enrolled and written in the Lamb's book of life. We have that right now. We enjoy God as our Father instead of our judge because Jesus Christ is our mediator because his blood is a better blood. So like the Christmas spirits in Dickens' novel, the Holy Spirit, he has set before you two mountains, two places of worship. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. So the question for us I believe at this moment, is where are you worshiping God? Right now, where are you worshiping God? I pray it's Zion. The characteristics of your faith will determine that. Do you stand at a distance still? Are you afraid to draw near to God, thinking that your sins have not been fully covered by the blood of Christ? Do you not want to hear him speak to you through his word? Are you like the Israelites who say, oh, stop talking. I'll read my Bible, but I don't really want it to go in. Maybe, maybe you become lazy. Maybe you no longer enjoy God's word as living and active in your life. Now, before you dismiss this so quickly and you say, no, no, I'm here, Pastor. I read my Bible. I go to my Bible studies. Before you do that, as a good Reformed theologian, you need to realize you can do all these things and still refuse to hear God speak to you. I would argue that many Christians are in church Sunday after Sunday, and they refuse to hear God speak to them. Just like the Israelites, they say, no more, please stop speaking. Being a Christian for a long time, I think, can be very dangerous when it comes to hearing God's word. We will say it's not, it doesn't have the energy, it doesn't have the relevance. I read it and I don't hear anything. Or I read it, but I don't submit, because I don't want to submit. Many Christians, especially, I would argue, in the Reformed Church, we worship God like we're still at Mount Sinai. We stay at a distance. We know the word, but we do not do the word. We don't want to draw near. We don't want to make ourselves vulnerable. We don't want to come into community. We don't want others talking to us about God and how we ought to live. We don't even want to hear the basics of the faith again because all it does is bring conviction. My beloved, when you read a passage like Matthew 28, 19, which you've heard from this pulpit probably a thousand times, literally, and Jesus said, go and make disciples, that's a very basic command. I would say not too difficult to understand. If you hear that command year after year and you do not do it, you must realize that you are worshiping God at Mount Sinai, not at Mount Zion. 
You cannot hear his word over and over and not do it and think you're at Zion. You're like the Israelites crying out, don't talk to us anymore. We don't want to hear it anymore. You cannot read Galatians 6.2, which commands God's people to carry each other's burdens and this way what? Fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens. You can't read that and continue to live year after year your life taking care of your burdens, your needs, your struggles without ever really helping. This is not just I'll pray and I'll think about you. Really physically, tangibly helping brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't hear that year after year and not do it and think you're at Zion, you're at Sinai. My beloved, when Jesus calls his people to a new allegiance, to a new spiritual family, the church. When he says in Mark chapter 3, who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever hears that and yet continues to live a radically individualistic life, concerned about your needs and your desires, putting everything and everyone above yourself other than the church, your marriage, your careers, your children, your homes, you're at Sinai, you're not at Zion. Remember, at Mount Zion, you've come into the very real presence of the living God. At Zion, you're in the presence of angels and saints victorious, all of whom are obeying God's word and God's will perfectly. Do you want to be that person who's at Zion, looking around, seeing complete and total loving obedience to God and say, I'm not doing that. We don't want to be that saint. We don't want to live like that. Obedience, listen. Obedience to God is normal worship at Mount Zion. Obedience to God is normal worship at Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion in Christ. If you are in Christ, that's where you are. And therefore, obedience in every area of your life is expected. It's normal. It's what worship is in the presence of the living God. Every area. Your work, your marriage, your children, your ministry, your part of being community here. Romans 12, 1, presenting your bodies, your whole life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is worship at Mount Zion. All right. So we've seen past worship at Mount Sinai. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. We've seen present worship at Mount Zion where the Christian is able to worship God right now through obedience in faith. Right now. Can I, can I give you one more briefly? And I'll be brief. Don't look so tired. Here you go. Last one. Worship future. It's good to be at Mount Zion now. It's good, but you want to, you want to stay here. You, you want that to be your end. Point number three, worship future. Future. We don't want to go back to a place where there's no hope. There's no hope at Mount Sinai. We want to worship God right now at Mount Zion, and we want to worship God forever at Mount Zion. We want this to be the trajectory, to dwell forever, ever, forever and ever where? In the city of the living God, in the heavenly Jerusalem. We want to, I imagine every single one, we say, yeah, I want to end there. I want to be with the angels and the saints and God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit forever and ever. That's where I want. I pray you do. That's what I want. In other words, you don't want to in this life 
You don't want to flee from Mount Sinai and the judgment that you deserve as a sinner before a holy God. You don't want to flee from Sinai to Zion and then go back to Sinai. That's the whole warning of Hebrews, right? Don't forsake Christ. Don't turn away. You're at Mount Zion right now. Don't leave. Don't leave lest you perish. So what hope is there? What hope is there for, some, for people like us who are so weak? What hope is there for someone like me who's so weak of faith to think I'm going to get all the way to the end? What hope is there? Look at verse 24 again. Friends, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, you, you can't just read that and go, oh, yeah, I know what that means. That's, that's hard. Lots of discussion on what it actually means. It took me a while, but I, I think I got my hands on it. What does the author mean that Jesus' blood speaks a better word, gives a better message than the blood of Abel? Well, if you know the story of Abel, Genesis chapter 4, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Cain was filled with jealousy because God received Abel's offering and he did not receive Cain's. And so Cain killed him. Cain spilled his blood. But then we're told in Genesis 4, verse 10, that the Lord said to Cain, Cain, what have you done? The voice, listen, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel was dead. His innocent blood had been spilled, and yet the blood was still speaking. There was still a message going out. And then God said this, this to Cain, now you are cursed from the ground. Genesis 4.11, you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. In other words, Abel's shed blood was speaking punishment. It was speaking a curse. It was speaking God's justice for Cain committing murder. That's the message of Abel's blood to mankind. God is holy, you are sinful, blood deserves eternal death. But then we're told in verse 24, the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, what's the better word? Well, Christ too was murdered. Christ too shed truly innocent blood. It was spilled upon the cross, and he was killed by jealous murderers also, just like us. But his blood speaks a better word to sinful man. It speaks a better word to murderers like us to hear and receive with great joy. See, hanging on the cross, the, the blood that was pouring out of our Savior's head and His hands and His feet as the darkness of Sinai came over the cross for three long hours and upon the cross, Christ received and experienced the totality of the wrath and hell that we rightly deserved. Jesus, He prayed to who? He prayed to God, the judge of all. He prayed to God, the judge of all, Luke 23, 34. You know what he said, right? Oh, you better know what he said. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' blood speaks a much better message. It is a message of forgiveness, saints. It is a message of an opportunity to be reconciled with God, to be pardoned of your crimes, to be made holy as Christ is holy. It is an infinitely better message than Abel's. Abel's was a message of judgment and justice. Christ is a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. What a better word for murderers like us. 
What a better word for those of us who want to draw near to God and not be condemned and not be judged. But instead, listen, forgiven completely of every single sin that keeps you from God. Past, present, and future. Every sin you have committed, are committing, or will commit, Christ covers with His blood. And therefore, enables you to say, that's a much better word. That's a word that I want to hear. That's a word I want to receive. Christ's blood speaks the perfect word because it guarantees not only your entrance into Zion, it guarantees your permanent residency there by the new covenant of grace for those who keep the faith. Listen, the entire warning was don't turn away. Stay the course. Keep the faith all the way into Mount Zion. If you follow Jesus, I'm going to make this so binary. If you follow Jesus right now and you do not turn back, you don't go back to your past worship, you don't go back to your past idols, but instead you stay the course in Christ, meaning you hear His Word daily spoken to you. You receive it with great joy and you submit to it in Christ. Meaning you get up on your knees daily and you say, Lord, speak to me, encourage me, rebuke me that I might know you. It means that you gather on days like this, on the Lord's Day. You said, I want to be rightly fed, and I want to feed others. I want to be a producer in the community that I might see you glorified through your children, God. You stay that course in accordance with the faith prescribed here in the Bible by the power of the Holy Spirit, and your worship future is secure. It's guaranteed. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep. Hear my voice. I love this. And he says, and I know them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And then he says, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a warning of love, saints. It's a warning of love to God's children like you reminding us that we must keep the end in sight. It is Christ upon the throne. It is the city of God. It is the dwelling place of God. That's your end. That's where you want to end up. But you might not perish. Do you remember, uh, do you remember Ebenezer Scrooge's final vision? Remember the final Christmas future? I don't know if you've read the book. If you haven't, read it. There's some great renditions out there in cinema also. But listen to Dickens' description here of the ghost of Christmas future. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached Scrooge. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knees. For in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. Sound familiar? Sounds like Mount Sinai. The spirit takes Scrooge first. If you know the journey, he takes him to these three wealthy men, and they're talking about this deceased man. The name's not given. And they're joking about the funeral. They're talking about how cheap the funeral will be if anyone goes at all. And then one of the businessmen said, I'll go if there's free lunch. Next, the Spirit takes Scrooge to see all these people who are stealing this dead man's belongings. And, they, and Scrooge knows them all. They're acquaintances and they're co-workers. 
he's shown this shrouded corpse, this dead body, and Scrooge pleads with the spirit, do not show me the face of the man. He begs him not to. He begs the spirit to show him someone who has some compassion upon this dead man's soul. Overwhelmed with grief and remorse, the spirit finally takes Scrooge to a run-down churchyard and he shows the miserable miser his own grave. And Scrooge realizes at that moment that the dead man of whom all the others spoke so ill of was himself. Listen to what he says. Falling to the ground, he cries out, Good spirit, your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. If you know the end of the story, the warnings that Scrooge received past, present, and future had their right effect. He woke up on Christmas Day, how? A completely changed man, then and forever. My beloved, if you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted truly in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then Christ has interceded for you. He has had pity upon your soul. He has not led you to the fiery darkness at Mount Sinai. He has led you through the cross to Mount Zion, to the city living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the presence of angels and saints, all worshiping God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the greatest celebration ever known. By Jesus' blood, he has changed the shadows of your life so that you can live and love and serve and worship right now as a new creature at Mount Zion. I want to encourage you to fight daily through prayer and God's word to stay at Mount Zion. Fight weekly by being in real, authentic community to stay at Mount Zion. Do not turn back to the shadow of your old life. Hear the warnings of God through this book and stay the course so that by the finished work of Jesus Christ, Mount Zion will be your forever place of worship, your forever home. Revelation twenty two fourteen. blessed are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb so that they may have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bring the weight of this passage to us. That you would give sinful creatures like ourselves a right vision of your holiness at Mount Sinai. That we would, like your great servant Moses, tremble at your holiness and the thought of our own sin. That you would simultaneously, Lord, lead us to see clearly that we are not at Mount Sinai. We are at Mount Zion. We are already in the city of the living God. We are already in the heavenly Jerusalem. Show us that, I pray, Father, so that we might live now in light of this truth so that we might live as citizens of the eternal kingdom. Right now, Father, and in light of that, Lord, cause us to love and to serve and to worship you in a radically different way. I pray, Lord, that you would keep our feet upon that straight and narrow path, that we would not be a people who deviate to the left or the right, that we would not go back to our old worship, our old idols, that we would fix our hope completely upon Christ, 
and that we would follow him all the way in to our last breath, Lord, when we close our eyes and we leave this place and we come into your presence and you draw us in and you say, well done, good and faithful servant, and we enter the celebration with the angels and with the saints victorious. Oh, Father, I pray that for my brothers and sisters. I pray that for myself, Lord, that we might make it by your grace and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.